0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm excited to talk to Dr. Lorenzo Perillo about choreographing in color, Filipinos, hip-hop, and the cultural politics of euphemism which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Investigating the development of Filipino popular dance and performances since the late 20th century, Choreographing and Color reveals how the Filipino dancing body has come to be both globally recognized and indiscernible. The book draws from nearly two decades of ethnography, choreographic analysis, and community engagement with artists, choreographers, and organizers and asks, what does it mean for Filipinos to navigate the violent forces of empire and neoliberalism with street dance and hip hop? Dr. Lorenzo Perillo is assistant professor of theater and dance an affiliated faculty with the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, Center for Philippine Studies, and Center for Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. His work as an interdisciplinary cultural studies scholar is grounded within the indigenous Filipino concept of capua, which translates imperfectly to self and other and together with the person. In this way, he focuses on bridging dance, theater, and performance studies with critical race, ethnic, feminist, and indigenous studies, while broadening the types of knowledge established within these fields. Lorenzo, welcome to New Books and Performing Arts.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege and an honor to join you.
1: So I like to get us started by asking the authors to share with us their book's origin story. So tell us how Choreographing in Color came about.
2: Yes. Um, choreographing in color basically started um, with my origins in, in dance. And so I have to give a shout out to my big sister, my at who I followed to uh, the tall flag team <laughs> back in, in high school, which then eventually led me to join the dance team or the all-male co-ed um, drill team. And so um, those experiences really were formative in my development. They sort of were my formal introduction into dance and choreography, um, where we would do street dance and hip hop and compete at the national level, representing our, our high school, um, Mira Mesa High. But I also sort of at the same time was learning about garage parties and Filipino parties and, you know, getting my little sisters to perform with me for birthdays. Um, and that led into my undergraduate career in dance, where I performed with the Filipino community and Filipino culture nights, and also with the uh, professional hip hop dance troupe Culture Shock. And so I think those were the experiences which really gave me sort of the, the idea that I, I really wanted to have a continuing relationship with dance and with the community and with the hip-hop culture over the long term and i knew looking down the line that that meant um, sort of beyond my body's capabilities and so i had to i had to think about what what would it mean to transition into something more intellectual or more research-based or more academic um, with dance and with hip-hop And so, and also I was really kind of curious about this definition of the conscious hip hop artist and how it was limited to MCs and rappers. And I really wanted to push against that with with all the experiences in the dance community that I found really transformative and also quote unquote conscious. So this is sort of the start of that nugget or of that experience that led to my work as a master's student studying uh b girls and b boys in waipahu in hawaii and then also as a doctoral student um, doing my dissertation which then this became um this was a this is a substantially revised version of my dissertation and um yeah i think those that pretty much explains some of the the genesis of the book
1: i'm also very intrigued by a book's opening sentence and you start your introduction by saying that being in the Philippines disorients me. As a fellow itinerant researcher uh, that uh, resonated with me, but I would like you to tell us how and why was that?
2: Oh, thank you so much. That's a great question. Um, so being born in, the, in, in Hawaii, um, raised in San Diego and then pursuing education in Northern California and Hawaii and in um, California, doing research in the Filipino diaspora and also in the Philippines as a homeland means a lot of different things. And so for me, uh, it was really a it was really a challenge and also a learning experience to return to the Philippines as a as an academic as a researcher during my Fulbright fellowship and to uh, research the the issues the contemporary issues of gender inequality and uh, postcolonialism through hip-hop it meant also engaging with my insider outsider status um, my ancestry my my father and my mother are both from the Philippines from uh, my mother is from Bulacan and my, my dad is from Bicol and so there's this there's a sense of knowingness and unknowingness that I experienced doing research in the quote unquote field. And um, I really wanted that to be the entryway into the positionality that the reader gets a sense of my own mixed positionality and how complicated it is rather than being something like, I guess, maybe a traditional anthropologist is, you know, defamiliarizing um, or familiarizing the strange. For me, it was much more embedded in the American colonial project because my dad um, immigrated to uh, the U.S. through the U.S. Navy and was recruited by the Navy as part of you know, this history of uh, U.S. occupation in the Philippines. Um, and so that sort of foreshadows this entry point into thinking about Filipinos in hip-hop, not from a place of neutrality, but from um, a place of the histories of U.S. colonialism in the Philippines and across the globe. And so for me... Like, I love first first sentences, so it did take me a while to think about, you know, to, to workshop <laughs> what would be a good first sentence. And the typical or one of the, you know, one of the dominant paradigms within Asian American studies, um, which is one of the fields that I've trained in, is obviously Orientalism. And so for me to flip that script and think about how where in the US, one of the paradigms of that Filipinos experience in terms of racialization is being orientalized, exoticized as the other. Um, for me, as a Filipino diaspora, diasporic member, being in the Philippines was both disorienting in the sense that orientalism was not necessarily um the process of racialization that I then experienced, but also just being in the Philippines, being in Manila meant trying to find my bearings um, as an ethnographer and and in commuting, like um, getting through town, going going from field sites, from dance concerts to dance classes, to choreographers, you know, meeting spots and rehearsals. It was quite a, a challenge. There was no Google Maps. <laughs> there were there were uh, basically jeepney routes that I had to memorize, and so I felt like it was really kind of important for me to kind of start the book off uh, with that concept that sort of has multiple layers.
1: Yes, and it's a great way for us, the readers, to situate ourselves and to understand, you know where you are in relation to your research. I really enjoy that. Thank you. The book's title is Choreographing in Color, of course. And uh, you discuss here, as you say, the ways in which Filipinoness, particularly as it is understood by non-Filipinos, has been informed by Black cultural expressions. And race is an important theme here. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I think this is um, this is important because I think oftentimes, at least for me, doing research or preparing to do research with um, at the intersection of Filipinos, uh Filipino identity, Filipino race, gender, and empire, and hip hop, um, we sort of get into kind of debates that don't necessarily deal with uh, the systemic and structural inequalities of race and gender. And so for me, um, really emphasizing the intersection of critical race studies and uh, and feminist studies and performance studies was important to kind of move and push uh, both Filipino studies and, and hip hop studies into new and generative conversations. So within this, I sort of, want to call for the the readers and the audiences to kind of unlearn the racial and sexual and gender expectations that are associated with Filipinoness and Filipino identity, to be able to hold space to critique both uh, how Filipino nationalisms and hip-hop nationalisms have often been used to justify other modes of oppression. Um, And so part of that is by using choreography as a term and as a method of analysis to bring into Kind of view a more agentive role of, of the choreography or the dance, and have it inform the ways that my research uh, proceeds or my research took took place, rather than to just conceive of the choreography or the dance as a mere object to be to be analyzed. And here I'm taking cues from um, critical dance studies like Tommy de France and um, Susan Foster to kind of be creative or use this opportunity to, uh, to, to think about and theorize around the ways that the creative process or the aesthetics or the internal discourse of hip hop dances and street dances can inform how the research feels or looks or, or moves across the page.
1: Euphemism is uh, something that frames your analysis. Could you talk a little bit about that? Define the concept of performative euphemism. And one thing that I found really interesting is how you use this concept to tackle another important concept here, which is that of appropriation.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so um, performative euphemism um, is my way of thinking about how in the cultural imaginary of, um, of Filipinoness and types of corporal orature or things that Filipinos do um, and, mo- and the ways that Filipinos move on stage or in everyday practice, how they can sometimes fall, how they can sometimes recode the violence or um, refer to particular expectations um, within society or that fall around anti-Filipino racism or sexism or neocolonialism, but they they can also fall, they can also move outside that code. So one of the examples that I use is when I was with with my cousins, my Filipino cousins in Bulacan, and I was speaking English, and they referenced um, having a bloody nose, or they kind of referred to me as causing them to have a bloody, a bloody nose, which I thought was very interesting because it was sort of this dark kind of comic joke, comic, or dark joke about how, you know, my privilege in speaking the colonial language or English was actually a negative. <laughs> but at the same time, it was not necessarily sort of a direct, like active resistance or a direct, you know, protest, against assimilation and so for me it was really interesting gesture or performance or performative gesture um, that was able to kind of euphemize what they were what they were trying to kind of um, you know have a social criticism about and so for me like i thought that was a great metaphor or a great way of thinking about how there are oftentimes that philippine people that identify in philippine as filipino or that are um, working in filipino cultural productions they don't necessarily perform a traditional filipino character or traditional filipino-ness and they also don't necessarily perform an assimilation or an assimilative kind of script they're somewhere in between or they're somewhere you know, maybe they're performing um, something in the vein of, of of Black cultural expression. And so for me, the euphemism also tied into hip hop. So in the way that we might hear music that has a cuss word or um, a, a word that is, you know, an expletive and it's bleeped out, that euphemism is there. And we know that it's bleeped out and we sort of, if we are knowledgeable of what it means, We sort of know we have knowledge of two things or three things all at the same time and so for me it was a way of getting around the sort of binary thinking that often kind of appropriation and appreciation um, criticisms um, fall under so unlike appropriation i think this metaphorical power of the euphemism helps us articulate sort of the co-presence of brown subjectivity with non-brown others because appropriation usually implies Borrowing, you know, a ruling class member or majoritarian subject borrowing from a mi- minoritized culture, but a euphemism for me sort of enables more uh, conversations and vocabulary around uh, situations when social actors, uh, the relationship between actors are less clear and kind of clarifies more of the limitations and possibilities of hip hop as a strategy for racial and gender uh, recognition. So I guess to kind of Think about that in terms of, you know, Filipinos who are non-black Filipinos um, and their performance of black dance like hip hop. For me, it's it's important to think of that as implicated in this ambivalent discursive space that Filipino identity exists in, but not just out of you know, a vacuum. But that ambivalence of being Filipino or being brown is is a product and a formation out of U.S. imperial desire and fantasy that sort of reproduces Philippines or uh, the Filipinos or Puerto Ricans or Native Hawaiians and Samoans as both part of and outside of, of uh, U.S. domesticity. So it's quite different from thinking about hip-hop as a globalized form and much more kind of um, in line with thinking about hip-hop as—or for Filipinos and hip-hop as Uh, an ambivalent kind of space.
1: That was uh, very uh, useful for me to understand the choreographies and uh, and the the practices that you're talking about here. But I think that one of my favorite things about your book is how you skillfully combine theory and praxis. Not only do you have, of course, all this embodied knowledge and experience of what you're talking about as a dancer and also as a judge in dance competitions, you took the time to conduct several interviews. Uh, You talked to a lot of people who were involved in these performances.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Can you tell us a bit about your, your ethnographic work and how, as you said, you try to avoid reducing the experiences of the research participants and your analysis of their experiences to frames outside of their worldview. That's something I, I'm I'm really concerned with as well.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you know, like I think I think often it's 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 such a challenge, right? To to approach ethnography and also to approach something that's moving and contemporary, like um, hip hop and street dance, and to kind of not, I guess, not just impose one's theoretical framework onto, onto the subject or onto the field, but to kind of think through and think alongside and create alongside um, interlocutors. And so for me, I think part of that challenge meant, you know, even though I was really coming to coming to the project with an intent to deal with the intersection of Filipinoness and Blackness at the structural level, um, you know, or at the institutional level, that didn't mean that all of my interlocutors or necessarily all of the dancers that I, I judged or um, interviewed also saw things that way. So part of it was really finding room in that creative process of storytelling to Allow for multiple versions of the story, or multiple histories and multiple narratives to exist. And I think for me, you know, that meant often, you know, sharing sharing drafts of my writing with the folks that I interviewed. It meant, um, you know, asking them questions of um, let's say current events or things that happened that were out both outside of the the performance or um, more more related to you know. Just sort of more related to the the themes or the theories that were circulating in in the global hip hop community, um, and and I think like one example might be, for instance, um, like in my in my second chapter when I'm working alongside uh, B-girl uh, Chi and thinking about her migration pathways, um, I really felt like it was important to not only Assume the state discourse of migration being a big migration outside of the Philippines, being something that, that's heroic, um, or something that you know is for the good of Filipino nationalism because it allows Filipino overseas workers to to send remittances, which then you know provide for for the homeland, but to allow her her narrative or how her understanding of that migration in relationship to dance come forward. So not just as a a dancer or someone that is employed in the dance entertainment industry, but also how that migration itself is an act of movement that could be shaped or that could parallel or that could inform or that could be informed by her own movement on the dance floor.
1: Yes. And we'll talk about chapter two in a minute, (laughs) but I want us to talk about the first chapter Uh, Because it discusses a performance that I think many of our listeners might be familiar with. But you provide uh, so much context and a rich analysis that a lot of folks, and I include myself here, Mm. might have lacked when we watched this. And it is, of course, that viral video of a performance of Michael Jackson's thriller at a detention and rehabilitation center. It is a fascinating chapter, and I learned so much by reading it. I had like ten questions about it that we're not going to be able to go through it, but you did uh, help me understand what I liked and disliked when I watched this as you know this disembodied viral video thing. But central to your analysis, and as you you say here, to this worldwide popularity of this performance. It, are narratives of discipline, colonial choreography, and especially the queerness of the leading lady. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Um, you know, this this chapter originated, um, you know, back in two thousand and eight. And like you said, I, for folks who don't know, it, it centers the 2007 viral video of 1,500 inmates in the Cebu Provincial Detention and Rehabilitation Center, or CPDRC. Um, so this is early YouTube, um, and they performed the rendition of their own rendition of Michael Jackson's Thriller music video as sort of proof of an exercise program that aimed to build teamwork and reduce gang activity through dance. Um, so. This was sort of performance-based proof of their of the prison's rehabilitation, I guess, function. And so for me, it was quite interesting to see this go viral. Um, it had a view count of 58 million, which at that time was, or at one time, it was the third top favorite video of all time. Um, and as someone you know who grew up not seeing a lot of Filipinos. In the mainstream, or Filipino visibility, you know, Filipino visibility is something that's often talked about in uh, Filipino studies or Filipino American studies as as one of the main problems. Despite the large demographic and long history of U.S. Philippine relations, this announced to me sort of a turning point in the global mainstreaming of the Filipino body or the Filipino dancing body, which was, you know, quite something something notable something exceptional something to celebrate if if you are um, if you are used to not being seen <laughs> used to not seeing yourself but at the same time I, I really wanted to question like what does it mean for it to be an example of choreographing discipline onto these quote-unquote deviant um, bodies and also reference this this um, Let's say the quintessential music video of American culture, you know, that's rooted in um blackness and African American um media, right? And so yeah, it just kind of really made like um was a way of me kind of un- understanding my bittersweet or my mixed feelings. When, um, when engaging with the text, because to, like usually it wasn't critical, or at least as, as I found it, not many people were questioning the, the rights of the prisoners to be put on social media or, or the, you know, the role of different prisoners based on whether or not they had a trialer. Um, they were they had different status. In the prison, or if they were being forced to to dance. So for me, it was kind of a a good way in the context of the book to examine those intersections of Black popular culture, uh, Filipino colonialism, and um, queerness, and um, and think about those in the context of uh, Filipino performance. So for instance, like my emphasis on the narrative of discipline or colonial choreography. So for for me the popularity of this dance as colonial as colonial choreography works because the dancers are they're sort of in line with a more uncritical or a specific way of dancing that was rooted that was also institutionalized in the dance history the american colonial dance history of the philippines so if we go back to when um, the u.s occupied the philippines they institutionalized dance because they also were the um they institutionalized public education so they they made dance available to the masses Uh, but in those dance in those dance courses they, they weren't teaching students to create dances of their own. They weren't teaching students to, you know, improvise or to think about how dance is related to power and knowledge, um, but they were kind of within a physical education paradigm of dance. And so uh, that physical education paradigm of dance, while it, you know, has certain benefits with kind of kinesiology or fitness, it... It doesn't necessarily engage with the social and the political dimensions of dance, um, and for me, and you know, this is kind of a, dis- a distinct difference between dance education or dance studies currently um, in the Philippines versus in the U.S. Is that the American colonial project sort of rooted in physical education, and then in this video we see this blurring of the lines between physical fitness. And uh, rehabilitative fitness, right? So this kind of thinking that the dance is rehabilitating different um, different charges or different different issues that that individuals are are grappling with in the prison is is not necessarily clear, um, but it's it's sort of the argument that the prison is making is that because they're all dancing the same, because they're all moving as a team, everybody is sort of, um, Everybody should be seen as moving a step for, forward in terms of rehabilitating. And also it positions us as sort of, since the camera is situated at an upper level or a mezzanine level, it sort of situates us as these global viewers more in line with the the guards uh, rather than the prisoners. So it really... It really kind of uh, shapes the ways that we interact with, uh, with the performers.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Yes, it, it is indeed a, a fascinating chapter, and we could spend the whole episode on it. Uh, <laughs> as you already alluded, the the next chapter deals with migration, right? And you, you actually tell us that it was an obstacle that you faced during your research was the repeated immigration as of some of the key collaborators in this process and I appreciated your analysis of dance and performance as labor and found that you made a great contribution when you look at Filipino dancers in the context of a larger process of global labor export. So I'm going to shamelessly uh, steal a question that you asked in the book because I found it very interesting. So what happens if dancing is considered as an identity generating, as well as an income generating activity?
2: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think this is such a great, um, this is one of my favorite chapters, to be honest, is it because it was one of the chapters that came later in my writing process. Um, and it allowed me to, to really develop a theory or develop concepts that I didn't find in the field or in the existing literature. Um, So in this chapter, I really think through uh, a couple of different things. Like you say, dealing with dance, not just as uh, a professional income generating activity, which for me is the way that a lot of uh, migration studies deals with performers or dancers is sort of dealing with them, or they don't necessarily... They miss out on an opportunity to engage the the content of the dancing that's happening, right? Or the the ways that the dancing is shaping the subjects or the, the dancers' identity. And so for me, it really is kind of bringing in those histories of you know of embodied knowledge that are attendant to um, let's say you know jazz dance or ballet or hip hop and kind of thinking about those as valid sources or factors in thinking about how dancers negotiate or navigate issues of labor migration. So in this, I sort of deal with, again, this is sort of uh, something that I'm intimately familiar with as family members of mine have uh, been petitioned to to move to the US, but their, their petitions were not processed for 20 years. Um, and this is something that I found also with, with the dance community. And so there were many dancers who had started their petitions in the 80s or 90s, and then um, or had, had, had petitions started, and then they began their dance careers in the Philippines, um, had huge dance careers, and then found themselves with a choice of um, migrating, rejoining, or reuniting with their family members in the U.S. or Australia <clears throat> or other parts of the global north but also having to decide whether to give, a whip, give up their the dance careers that they have in the Philippines. Um, so I found this dilemma to be quite provocative and interesting and something that helped me think through one form of Filipino migration, and the other one was sort of more temporary migrants that would, um, there's a history of overseas uh, Filipino workers that were categorized as choreographers and dancers, that emigrated from the Philippines to countries in Asia or in the Middle East that were developing their economies and um, also had sites of U.S. militarism. And um, in those places, there there was a need for entertainers, performers to work in nightclubs or amusement parks and kind of provide material and spiritual and emotional labor for uh, for these audiences, whether they be uh, white businessmen or cr- crazy rich Asian audiences. But I, I felt like it was important to kind of think through how Filipino labor, Filipino dance labor in these uh, emerging Asian economies played a, a role um, because the Filipino body was seen as a racial other for some of these other Asian states and citizens um, to be democratized. So I really kind of wanted to again push and press and think about what are the structural dynamics that affect Filipinoness and Filipino identity, and in this in this sense, um, the migration visas and laws and um, policies, and how do those shape the identities of these dancers? Because. Again, there's this nationalist discourse that Filipinos uh, that Filipinos are her- Filipino workers um, to emigrate are or hero are national heroes or modern day heroes, and I wanted to kind of bring forth these narratives that the Filipino dancers or uh, migrants, whether they continue to dance and or transition into different um, sectors of labor, how did they understand this migrant hero trope? Um, so whereas the 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 chapter on um the prisoners was about the zombie as a euphemism this this chapter was about the hero as a euphemism for this uh the role of the philippines in terms of global labor in terms of global labor and yeah and I, i i really i really kind of um I, I, I enjoyed thinking through b-girling and the, the ways that b-girling in terms of some of the movements like uh, floor work or uh, power moves or the get down, how some of those paralleled um, different processes of migration. And I also learned um, through this research process a lot about the stereotypes that Filipino dancers and entertainers faced when um, deciding to, or considering emigration to Japan, because there's this history of stigma attached to um, entertainers in Japan as uh, sex workers. And so this kind of prevented or colored the ways that the Philippine state then regulated overseas labor. Um, And what was interesting to me is that the Philippine state has um, several institutional apparatus that um, perform Filipino labor brokerage. And here I'm kind of building off of sociologists, uh, Robin Rodriguez and Ana Guevara, and thinking about how the Philippine state brokers like global Filipina bodies. Um, And and, in Japan, um, that stigma at what I argue was sort of uh, mitigated by the the mandate of ballet and jazz testing for for dancers that planned on working in in Japan and so they would have experts in the Philippine dance community um, be judges actually to kind of um, regulate whether they were um, skilled in ballet and dance and enough to work in nightclubs and so for me that was like there's it only makes sense if you understand um, the ways that ballet you know or that ballet and concert jazz and actually later folk dance um, are seen as disciplinary um, are seen as ways of reaffirming whiteness or reaffirming um, respectability and and those mitigated this kind of moral stigma that was attached to uh, dancers working in nightclubs.
1: So I was also very invested in chapter four. Uh, It draws from your experiences, training and judging at the self-proclaimed Olympics of hip hop uh, from 2012 to 2014. And I'm really invested in it because I am also investigating competitions. In my case, it's drag competitions. And your chapter complicates this assumption, but this is something I'm interested in, this potential of competitions, and especially international competitions to standardize or homogenize diverse and possibly even decolonial art forms and expression. You mentioned here this disciplinary nature of judging and the conundrum around standardization. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so um, so this chapter is based off, as you said, m- on my research as a, as a judge um, and training as a judge for the um, World Hip Hop International Championships, or HHIS, as are commonly known. And I really wanted to... Um, think through uh, the judge as its own category of identity or subject, and sort of decenter the dancer or the choreographer as the subject of of, of research. Because I felt like the judge plays a, such a different role, still connected to the content or the dance or the performance, and to um, and in this context to Filipino. Uh, hip hop and the global circulation of Filipino dancers, but in a much more, in a much, in a different scale, right? So dealing with 3,500 dancers and uh, from 48 countries, a panel of judges from different countries is trained prior to the competition. And then they are the ones that sort of facilitate or organize the the regional qualifiers. But looking at the judge. Rules and regulations as a type of script. I was really interested in that because I I wanted to see how does the how do the rules and regulations deal with some of these really contentious um, ideas, whether it be the history of hip hop or the definitions of you know the definitions of the form or how different groups from different countries can can perform different styles that have different histories and different racial and gender um, valences and all be held to the same standards. Um, So I wanted to kind of question whether that's a good thing or not, or whether what the history is and how it changed over time. And I kind of uh, came to understand some of the internal workings and processes of standardization and how standardization is sort of a type of euphemism in a way that provides um, a broad Broader audience to uh, to a sub former subculture like hip hop um, and allows also judges to steer the culture in ways that maybe the the choreographers and the dancers don't necessarily have access to and so I'm thinking about how when how judges train there are certain rules right and so the rules sometimes the rules can be changed the rules can be um, kind of uh, debated in workshops. But one of the things that's really interesting is how judges see see the culture changing. And let's say if they see something missing or they see something um, declining because of trends or popularity, then they can basically advocate for um, a return to certain things. Like, for instance, whole body dancing or groove-based dancing was one of the concepts that Judges found to be lacking um, as as the choreography in this competition became more um, isolate uh, isolation based or punctuated or even bridging upon um, cheer uh, cheer based routines with stunts and flips and acrobatics uh, and so for me like it was really interesting to see how some of those the cultural sort of uh, the aesthetics of the form uh, could be could be influenced by the judges and also by the by the criteria. Um, another thing was really kind of thinking about how, how judges comment on what they don't want to see or what they do want to see often has racial and gender kind of valences. So this idea of explicitly re- regulating against ex- excessive gymnastics or cheer has a, a kind of subtext in which hip hop is, you know, held in opposition to... To cheerleading competitions or drill team competitions, which are seen as, you know, commercial, white majority kind of archetypes of American femininity. So thinking about hip hop dance as a space of multiracial Black cool aesthetics in opposition to this kind of made sense to the judges, um, and so they found ways in the music regulations or in the dance in the mu- the movement regulations to kind of um, steer the the community in in a particular direction. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there were also, um, you know, there were also other things in terms of, you know, they they wanted to be inclusive of traditional dance and salsa and capoeira and folk dance. And um, some of my kind of criticisms or uh, thinking about um, how to uh, create room for improvement is how some of the judges have no experience judging or even dancing some of these quote-unquote traditional dances. So while this like embrace of indigenous folk traditions is um noble um there's still there's still this like a lack of training to to properly acknowledge or credit when when they see that kind of dance fused with hip-hop i don't know do you see this in your experiences judging as well
1: never judged uh but i'm investigating some you know i researched some competitions drag competitions and reading your chapter it made me rethink those competitions in the sense that I focused only on the performers, on the folks who competing. Mm. And you made me uh, want to know a bit more about the folks who are judging, the criteria, how does that affect the performances and things like that. So I'm so thankful uh, that you you know, I could borrow from your expertise as a dancer and as a judge to try to understand something that's so different from what you're analyzing here. But you, you gave me sort of like a framework and some ideas to look at my own work. So that that was amazing. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but and so th- this whole book, as you say, uh, you mentioned here, it was in part inspired by uh, this call, right, to put the theory back in the hands of practitioners. And that's what you're doing here and what that's what you're modeling with this book. And that's uh, why I was really it was really engaging to me. So to conclude here, what do you think we miss when we fail to do that? Or another way to put this was: What are some? There were some. Are are there some misconceptions that you feel that you had to address with this book, because other uh, works are written by folks who do not have this um, experience?
2: Yeah, I think that um, putting the theory back in the hands of the practitioners can mean a couple of different things and for me for instance if like i so some of the the ideas about race and gender um and sexuality can seem quite um, external to the actual performance or practice and so for me to be able to um, embody it or from um, to look at it from these different perspectives as a judge or as a practitioner uh, was was a way of kind of not just imposing some you know other external theory of race or also at the same time not just assuming that just because somebody let's say identifies as a particular from a particular racial background or gender background it's seen like verbatim in their dancing, right? Or in their choreography or in their practice. And so for me it was a way to really expand and open up and kind of subvert subvert like the the tendencies in academia to sort of just think about, you know, these um also these uh, I guess they're called a priori assumptions about um Filipinoness or when someone identifies as Filipino that it's just that's that's it. That's just them identifying is enough, but actually looking at their practice or their dancing or their choreography or the ways that they conceive of judging in relationship to ethnicity or tradition, I think those are all really important um, and potential theories that other scholars or other dancers can can play with or can, can pick up and expand or subvert or challenge
1: yes and i'm sure uh you know this uh, you you're providing here so much material for uh, other folks you know as i did think about their own research and what they're doing so i'm curious to know uh do you have anything that you're working on next or that you've worked uh, since you finished this book
2: yeah you know um i'm resting <laughs> just kidding no um this book has been, you know, 20 years in the making, so it was, it's definitely one of those, um, one of the the biggest milestones of of my career and my life. And so I'm I'm definitely continuing to engage um, with the communities that this uh, with the communities that I, I worked with in the book. And you know, hopefully, um, when things open up more, I can go back to the Philippines and 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 share. Um, currently, I'm working on a f- a couple of different things. Um, I'm working with, um, so previously I was at the University of Illinois in Chicago and over there I taught um, and I continue to teach a hip hop dance class that is at the intersection of hip hop dance and critical race studies. But at the University of Illinois Chicago, it was on um, more in line with Asian American studies, Asian American cultural politics. And I worked with an archivist, um, a special collections librarian. Professor Calais Warren, and we're working on a, a write-up of our experiences as um, at the intersection of you know, library studies, information studies, and hip-hop dance um, pedagogy as we led our students through oral history workshops, but also reflecting on that in over the last year, Uh, We've been trying to connect it to our own experiences as, you know, professors of color dealing with, uh, dealing with the the academic institutions in the times of COVID and anti-Asian racism and the movement for Black Lives, a racial reckoning of 2020. And so um, really kind of trying to turn towards thinking about building more pedagogical materials and reflections on how my research has shaped um, has been intrinsically shaped by my teaching
1: that sounds like very interesting but also necessary work Uh, and i i would love to read uh, anything that comes out of that project if it's a book please come back and talk to um, to us about that yeah i'd love to Lorenzo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
2: Oh, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.
1: Yes, it's, it's really been a pleasure, and we are uh, seven hours apart, but uh, I had a wonderful time talking to you. <laughs> to Yay. Our- Yay. thank you. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books in Performative Arts. I just spoke with Dr. Lorenzo Perillo about choreographing in color, Filipinos, hip-hop, and the cultural politics of euphemism, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.